This episode of Pick Up the Six podcast is sponsored by Allbirds. I've been an Allbirds customer for years because their shoes look great, they're super comfortable, and they make shoes and clothes that are better for you and better for the planet by using revolutionary premium natural materials. As a runner, I'm also looking for a shoe that feels and fits great out on a run. And so I'm pumped to tell you about the Allbirds Tree Flyer. I have a pair and they are great. The Tree Flyer is lightweight, super springy and wildly comfortable making your running efforts of all shapes and sizes feel surprisingly effortless. They provide unbelievable cushion and comfort so even your toughest runs are easier on your body. I noticed from step one when I put these on they just felt great and that's thanks to the swift foam midsole. It's lightweight and big on cushion and energy return. I recommend these shoes because I wear these shoes. I have the orange ones Plus, they have loads of other great stuff, too. And they're hooking you up with a free pair of Allbirds socks on your next order of 50 bucks or more. Just use the promo code PICKUPTHESOCKS. Pretty good, right? Pick up the socks at allbirds.com on your next order of 50 or more, and you're getting a free pair of socks from those guys. Lace up the tree flyer and get running today at allbirds.com. That's allbirds.com. Marty Strong spent 20 years as a Navy SEAL in the post-Vietnam, pre-9-11 era. He traveled the globe, including missions in Panama, and he's led teams of SEALs along the way. We're talking about service, leadership, and his book, Be Nimble, How the Creative Navy SEAL Mindset Wins on the Battlefield and in Business. This is Pick Up the Six Podcast. Brian Jodis back once again for another episode of Pick Up the Six podcast. Marty Strong joining me. Marty, it's great to have you, man. And, and thanks for the flex. We've been trying to do this for a while. We finally were able to make it happen. So thrilled to see you, man, and get to talk to you and let our listeners get to know you a little bit today. Yeah, thanks for reaching out. My pleasure. Looking forward uh, to before, it. Before we do that, let me take a moment of personal privilege here because uh, we recorded this show yesterday. It's going to air today. August the 6th, 2022. And I just want to take a couple of moments off the top of the show and uh, and just pause for a moment of reflection. Today is the anniversary of Extortion 1-7, a moment in American military history where we lost 30 warriors, uh, an American military dog, uh, a lot of Navy warriors, SEALs uh, during the war in Afghanistan. And, um, and just want to take just a few minutes, right? Quick little pause. Remember those brave warriors who uh, who paid the ultimate price, especially since this show is airing on that day. And uh, <laughs> I know that you and your friends and your community always remembers those those great warriors who laid it on the line. And uh, and when dates like this hit for us, uh, when you've got one of the, the largest casualties um, uh, in that war, uh, we always want to take a moment, just pause for a second. So we're doing that here off the top, Marty, for sure. That's good. Awesome. All right, man, let's get into it. Um, you've got a, a cool background, uh, spent time in the Navy, right? On the SEAL teams, uh, now uh, heavily involved in business and an author. So take me back to the very beginning. What day were you born? <laughs> I'm kidding. But where are you from, man? How'd, how'd you grow up? What, what gravitated you towards life in the Navy and then and then looking to get on the teams? Well, I, I was born in, and raised initially in Nebraska. So smack dab in the middle of the country. Yeah. Uh, my dad was... Uh, a Navy veteran enlisted uh, radar operator during the Korean War, did four years, got out to GI Bill and went to college and ended up going into uh, civil service, working for the Department of the Army for the next 30 plus years. So, you know, I had kind of a Navy thing from my dad. Mm -hmm. The um, I, I tried to join the Marine Corps with two of my buddies, 
And uh, after seeing the Marine Corps video, uh, guys running around with big rucksacks and everything, I was about 125 pounds at the time. That thing weighs more than I do. Yeah, I kind of said, yeah, I don't think so. So I ended up uh, actually going to the restroom and bumping into the Navy recruiter who asked me what I was doing there. And I explained it and I told him, I guess I wasn't going to be a good Marine because I don't think I could carry that kind of weight. And um, so he gave me his card. So I eventually trying to get out of Nebraska as a kid. I thought, all right, that's one escape plan. So I joined the Navy and I gravitated towards the uh, SEAL program, which ironically had me carrying at least as much, if not more than I, than the guy in the video, eventually <laughs> shit it's backfired. Yeah. <laughs> My grandfather was a sonar man in world war II. went back in to the Navy uh, for the Korean war as well. So I wonder if those guys, uh, if their paths crossed at all, <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. Yeah. It was a big effort, but um, that's cool, man. Grateful for him and his service. That was a different breed, man. Greatest generation. Those guys, many of them that, after fighting in that great war, signed back up to go, oh, yeah. again, to go do something that they didn't know what the heck was going on. Like, yeah, my dad's wow, generation were, uh, were really upset because they're sitting in, you know, small town America and they were just too young to miss the end of world war two. Yeah. And everybody came back and there was all the patriotic fervor at the end of the war. And, um, they thought, well, they'd never get their ch a chance to do that kind of thing. And, and all of a sudden, you know, the North Koreans invade. Mm -hmm. And my dad, like every other kid, you know, in small town America that were of his age, all ran down to the recruiting station. It was like they got a second chance. So uh, that's why he, he ended up doing it anyway. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Good on him. Um, once you get involved, what year was this? What years were you were you going through? it? What years did you get into the Navy? Uh, and what was that process like back then? So I did an early entry program. I uh, actually forged my signature on the Navy enlistment paperwork. The, my mom was, was, she had, she was an alcoholic, had a lot of other issues, but the uh, recruiter was nice enough to look the other way as I signed her name. It's a different time, so, huh? <laughs> yeah. So uh, that, hey, that was, guy, that sonar man I told you about forged his yeah. age so he could join for World War II. I, almost two years early, man, which is crazy. But so, you so did, I joined, right? I joined, I actually hit boot camp about uh, a week or so after I turned 17 and uh, in 1976. So I, 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 Technically, was in from from uh, seventy five to ninety six, but I was actively involved from seventy six to ninety six, so twenty years. Wow, incredible! What was because it's a different time, right? You, you, that pre nine eleven time frame, and we had a lot of other things that were happening. You think about things like Bosnia, and just th there are other situations around the world. But that precursor, right, sort of that pivotal, obviously m moment. I think for a lot of folks on the outside looking in and this is sort of the sign of the times. I think about SEALs, they, they think about lone survivor and the SEALs of Afghanistan and Iraq and all of that, right? What were, what were those 20 years like, 76, 96 timeframes? What were you guys so, doing? So when I showed up at SEAL Team 2 after Army Jump School and basic SEAL training, I guess we probably had about <clears throat> 20 people out of 105 that were not Vietnam vets, multiple tour combat yeah. vets. The, uh, the most of the SEALs were out by the end of 72. So it was very, very, you know, very, very close to them. They were still thinking about living it. And, and both SEAL Team 1 and SEAL Team 2, which were the only two teams in those days, uh, had SEALs. They were frogman units called underwater demolition teams. But those two SEAL teams were the jungle warfare experts of the Navy. 
Yeah. And they continued in that, in that vein until the early eighties. So it was interesting the, the guys that were training me were medal of honor winners, Navy cross winners, silver star winners, but pieces of their bodies shot off and mm-hmm. incredible stories to try to uh, make a point tactically. And they were able to put together incredible training scenarios and basically went through the same pre-deployment training process that they went through before they went to Vietnam, because that's the only training program they had and using the same weapons, et cetera. But the, the role of a seal, even in Vietnam was not kinetic. The role of a seal in Vietnam was more like a ninja. Mm. The only time they ever got into a real kinetic uh, event was either a planned ambush or when they got caught and they, they planned and they trained and they prepared to be as lethal as possible so that you were kind of, it's kind of like you, you saw something moving around, you grabbed it and you just grabbed a scorpion. So the first thing you did is you, you got stung and you dropped it. And while you're trying to figure out what to do next, you scamper off and get out of there. So their tactics were basically react very, very violently with lots of firepower and then run as fast as they could uh, out of the situation because getting caught wasn't the mission and getting into head to head combat was not the mission. The mission was to sneak in, essentially kill people in their sleep, kidnap people in their sleep, collect critical intelligence and either use it themselves to execute missions or to pass it on to other people to execute missions. So when I came in, that was it. You, we didn't have any bling. We had no sealed t-shirts. We had no posters, bumper stickers. You weren't allowed to tell anybody you were sealed. We didn't wear any of that um, stuff in our uniforms. When we traveled, we traveled in army uniforms. Sometimes we actually used uh, army insignia, like rank, really, just so that we had yeah. a low, low profile. And as a young person, you know, you're all you're always attracted to all the energy stuff, you know, the, the shooting and all that. So the older guys were basically beating us into you know wise old people that were thoughtful and had good judgment as fast as they could Mm -hmm. because you needed all those things to be able to sneak around so the missions you know post vietnam and the operations were were all classified they all they weren't major war scenarios you wouldn't read about them in the paper and that was it was kind of cold war era special operations and you know we were involved in it the seals the green berets were heavily involved in it and, and it's, it's some of it slowly come out, the stuff that they that was done in El Salvador and other places, but mm-hmm. it was an active period. It just wasn't a big shoot 'em up war yeah. until uh, the invasion of Grenada, which was an invasion. And there was a lot of overt SEAL uh, activity there. And then the um, we had SEALs in uh, Lebanon that were doing s- certain special operations, trying to support the Marines at the airport. We had guys up in the Shoof Mountains actually sne- hiding in, in buildings and houses and spotting for the, uh, I think it was the USS Missouri's battleship guns. And they would, they would see rocket launchers off three blocks away. And then they'd call in, call in the grid coordinates and the battleship would destroy the, you know, the block. Yeah. So there was all kinds of little things like that going on all the time. And then there was the invasion of Panama. And then almost immediately after that, within, you know, six to eight months, there was the, uh, was desert storm. So, in kind of in the middle of all that, in the uh, mid '80s, the mission of the SEAL teams changed from being the, the premier jungle fighters to being kind of the jack of all trades. So we we started doing Arctic warfare, mm. and we're training up in you know North Arctic Circle, uh, North Arctic Circle in Norway with you know Norwegian commandos and ski you know ski patrols and stuff. I remember we're as doing- a kid in the '90s seeing those Navy commercials. 
right? Yeah. With the guys in all the white gear. And I'm like, where the heck are these guys? That, yeah. That's where that's and at. Yeah. Underwater ship attacks, all yeah. kinds of high speed gear. We, uh, we were doing mountaineering. We were doing, uh, we were jumping out of airplanes with boats all of a sudden, things that weren't a part of the SEAL background in uh, the Vietnam era. And it spread us a little thin, I think, training wise, because we were, we had so many different mobility options, mm. many submarines, actual submarines, you name it, we could, we could get there through, through a conveyance. And, and then we had to operate in all these different kinds of um, austere environments. So that was an interesting learning curve for everybody. Uh, close quarters battle, hostage rescue, um, that became a big part <clears throat> of the SEAL, I guess the SEAL mentality in the middle of the 80s. And slowly shifted us away as the old timers started to you know, retire. We started shifting from ninja to door kicker. Mm, yeah, breaching. And yeah, I mean, it was guns ablazing. You tried to sneak up and if, if somebody said, hey, you know, I hear somebody outside, then you... Then you hit the place and you blew the door open and you, you cleared the place, which was great for the young seals because that's exactly what a young person wants to do. You want to slide down a rope after you've flown in low level, you know, in a Black Hawk helicopter. It's cool guys doing cool guy stuff. And as you're sliding down, there's there's Apaches rocketing things and there's gunships, you know, with bullets, tracers hitting everything. Oh, yeah. It's it's like an incredible, an incredible event. And that's the kind of mission that basically mm. seals were applied to once 9-11 happened. Yeah. It was primarily, you know, seek high value targets, either uh, kill or capture them. Same thing as Vietnam. Try to get as much intelligence as you can. Exploit the site. Grab every computer. Grab everything you can. Ask everybody, who do you know comes in and out of here? Who owns this house, et cetera? As fast as you can to minimize time on target. Leave. Give somebody all the intel. Sit back and let all the national surveillance assets or the local intel sources tell you what the next target is. And then repeat. So that's basically what SEALs did for the last 20 years. And, you know, I covered a lot of ground there, but that's kind yeah, of the evolution. Thanks for doing this. From forming, you know, SEAL Team 1 and SEAL Team 2 in 1962 for Vietnam, all the way to now they're kind of re trying to reinvent or reimagine themselves in the older, broader yeah. point of view. Yeah. All the same old missionaries, environments, learn to get in. It's not just a desert sandbox thing anymore. Yeah. Thanks for doing that. We, we've had the distinct honor of having some incredible warriors on this show and SEALs specifically, uh, folks like Eddie Penny, uh, Ray Care, but then also one of those ninjas you talk about, a guy who's a legend, Podcast 98 was Master Chief Kirby Harrell. And I, I got the sense that he was one of those like walking around legends post-Vietnam that you guys probably got to know or at least hear about. And it was like, what were those guys like? hear stories about what they were asked to do in Vietnam. It, it, the stories he told me, and you're right. It was like, we floated up the river. There were three of us on a boat. Nobody knew we were coming. We yanked this guy out of his bunk while he was asleep. Right. We got compromised on the way down. We took that target out. We got this guy back. Like it's, um, it's some pretty cool stuff. Yeah. And I mean, SEAL team two's motto actually on their, their command insignia is the silent option. Mm. So, <laughs> But I will tell you that towards the end of the last 20 years, a lot of the Vietnam era approach to, to doing special operations came back into vogue and they started doing a lot more sneaky peaky ninja slide in, grab people when they're sleeping kind of things. I think depends on who's in control of special ops. If, if you have infantry senior commanders that have been in infantry units or artillery units or armor units, 
they like violence of action and, and overwhelming firepower as you know option one yeah and so you know it's a it, you always evolve and you can pick how you want to do every mission and then once you get there and it's all completely upside down, then you have to decide how you're going to do it. And everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the face, right? Where, exactly. where is the, on the uh, sneakiness meter, where's the Bin Laden raid at? That That's a dark at night. Nobody knows we're coming, trying to keep super low profile kind of effort, right? Yeah, I'd say that would, that would be that. Obviously, it, it's a strategic, um, a strategic operation. It's a National Command Authority, you know, presidential, you know, monitored operation. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think if the one helicopter hadn't hit its rotor on the wall and woke everybody up down the street and turned it into, you know, a block, a block party. party. Um, It probably would have been a cleaner, smoother in and out, but you know, you you can't at some point, especially if you're going after high value target, that's surrounded by guns. They're not just going to give up, especially for people that are committed to somebody like him. Right. Yeah. So they, they knew they were going into a fight. And they knew at some point, even with silenced or suppressed weapons, that some the bad guys aren't shooting with suppressed weapons. So the second the bad guys start shooting, everybody's going to know. So mm-hmm. to do that that way with those kinds of helicopters, specially designed to get in quietly, and even with the rotor being uh, damaged and leaving one behind, they still got in and got out without casualties and got the job done, got the yeah. mission accomplished. And the best, some of the best news is uh, he got reunited with one of his best friends in the last week. Yeah, so isn't that great? That's true. It's a happy yeah. story. Happy ending. And probably um, a whole a whole slew of other guys we've never we've never memorized the names of from the last 20 years of that's true. It's plenty. It's been a hell of an effort, man. And you know, we I I joke a little bit, but we don't take it for granted, right? That the cost in which we've had to pay over the last 20 years to eradicate evil from the earth, it it, it hasn't come free, right? It hasn't come easy for our nation. And those warriors, the you're you're as you're sort of exiting, right? Late 90s. You got to be part of uh, training, teaching, mentoring that generation of fighter, right? Because you got to think about there's guys well, sure. that are coming in the late 90s that are teed up. Not everybody just signs up on September the 12th, 2001, right? There's guys that are already in the pipeline. So tell me a little bit about sort of the end of your career and what you saw coming through as you were starting to transition out. So we, so I was in, involved in the invasion of Panama and had led 36 combat missions in that event. Um, as a platoon commander at SEAL Team 4. And at that point, I was the only person that had really done that many repeat missions because, as I said before, most of the ones that were done were one-in, one-out kind of intelligence operations or, or things that nobody's going to hear about. So when I finished that, they, the Admiral pulled me and sent me to the schoolhouse in Coronado and asked me to, with another... Um, really experienced multi-tour Vietnam vet guy named uh, George Hudak asked the two of us to take over all the land warfare weapons and tactics training, which was one third of the the SEAL BUDS course. Mm. At the same time, he had me work on some other things that they were doing to include uh, updating a uh, junior leadership course for the officers that was less administrative and more tactics and mission planning. So basically take take everything I learned in a concentrated period of time doing, you know, lots and lots of repetitions and what worked, what didn't work, what, what of the doctrine that I'd been taught as a, as an officer uh, was reliable and consistently was a, was a positive or how much of it did I just throw out by the second mission? It was just, you know, worthless. 
So we did that with the junior officers. We did that with the senior NCOs. We actually did something like that with um, a couple of modules with the prospective commanding officer and executive officer course for the SEAL teams. So I was the kind of the curriculum architect for that. And, and all those guys, especially in the junior officers course, those are the guys that ended up being like Jocko. You know, they were the guys that ended up leading, you know, task forces in Iraq and in Afghanistan. And I think it was, it was a good time for that to happen because a lot of what we were doing up until my experience in Panama was more like football plays and less like instinctive tactics where in Vietnam, what we were taught uh, by the Vietnam veterans was much more natural and much more of a flow technique of thinking, planning, and evaluating and not working on perfect intelligence because intelligence is never perfect. And even if it is, it's fleeting. And those principles were the actual principles because when you start an invasion or you do something like that, it's kind of like turning the light on in the kitchen, all the roaches go everywhere. So you have a, a beautiful picture of where every roach was just before the light comes on. Right. And then all of a sudden, boom, now they're everywhere. So yeah. you have to learn how to think through each mission. You have to go to the target site, evaluate it, maybe back up, think about it again, do an old school reconnaissance before you do anything. Sometimes you have to abort and back out completely so you don't spoil the target because you can't figure out why it is what it is and go back and tell the people that sent you that something's different from what their assumptions were. So these are the kinds of things that, you know, both there in the, in the schoolhouse, later as a task unit commander and later as an operations officer, that was part of my responsibility to anybody in those roles in the SEAL teams at the time in the mid to late nineties to get that into the heads of the young officers and the senior NCOs who are advising the young officers to mature them and to give them that sense of wisdom and judgment that they hadn't gained yet through direct combat, but, you know, to get, get all those lessons are packed in their head. So they weren't starting from square one when, well, as we used to say, as the, when the balloon went up, which of course it did on nine 11. Yeah. Um, Jocko's become such a guy that like folks that, that listen to us, right. That are sort of in and around this space, just know going through that, you know, were there guys, was there guys that you were just like that? Well, that's a special individual. Is there anybody that that just sort of really grabbed your attention that that even if you were a even if you were senior to you almost kind of looked up to? Um, well, I looked up to everybody, everybody that I ever led, and, and especially the platoon I had in Panama, because we'd been together for three three straight years mm -hmm. as a as a group, which was a little rare at the time. Usually split up after two years and got redistributed. Every one of those guys was an expert in multiple areas of our profession, more expert than I was, even though I was an enlisted SEAL for 10 years before I became an officer. So I had a lot of, of experience, but I wasn't, I hadn't gone to all the schools. I, mm -hmm. There's no way I could be the, uh, the equivalent of an 18 Delta SEAL corpsman or medic. Um, and so these guys, some of them spoke multiple languages. So yeah, you, you're looking at this incredible brain trust that have the bodies of you know, college athletes and the sense of humor of a, of a stand-up comedian, and they're viciously honest in their critique, uh, <laughs> uh, their critique approach, approach, which was that way when I was enlisted, and that was that way when I was a young officer, and it was that way when I was a senior officer. Um, you get to appreciate that. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, the guys that had actually made it to the point of being what we would call an operator, which usually takes about two years, before that, you're in the pipeline. You know, the guys that I observed in, in Bud's training, you didn't know they were so raw. You didn't know if that, you know, and ha being good at athletics and being good 
having physicality didn't really convey to anything down the road. I mean, that was a minimal requirement for everybody. If you were the fastest runner in a SEAL platoon, so what? Because what we're evaluating you on is your ability to do the job, to work with everybody else, you know, your level of commitment. And, um, and then you got to learn what you got to learn. And then you got to execute what you've been taught. And, and that's, that's in the administrative role. And actually when you're out doing uh, combat training or combat operations, and that's when you really get the sense that, okay, the, the greatest runner is also a really good operator under stress or the best swimmer is really actually a really good officer because he listens to the wisdom of the enlisted guys and puts his plans together accordingly. So that's an evolutionary thing. It's hard to pick that out of a crowd in the beginning. You know, who's going to quit and not quit yeah. at the beginning of buds. Yeah. You can see it in their eyes. You know, you know, you're going to lose 75% of them, but you can tell pretty quickly uh, through experience as an instructor that they've already quit. You know, it's, it's, it's in their eyes. They've already given up and it's harder to tell how committed everybody is that isn't looking like that. If their eyes are just kind of stable or semi-intense, you don't know if that's, you know, that they're going to be a super seal or they're just going to basically make it through training and they'd be an average seal. That's a harder, that's a harder trait to anticipate and predict. Yeah. You, uh, you talked about sort of that timeline and then you, you, uh, you've got a transition, right? You end up with sort of the second half of career, career 2.0, right? And, and that's life and business. And you, uh, in January, just released a book. It's called Be Nimble, How the Creative Navy SEAL Mindset Wins on the Battlefield and in Business. So you just talked, right, about a lot of those traits, right, that you see from guys. I get a sense that a lot of that sort of fills up the bucket and then you're able to take that and apply it to life in business. So what did you learn, right, from the teams from high stress, low viz that you've been able to parlay in? And tell me a little bit about the experience of writing the book and what you hope folks get out of it. So the, the interesting, I guess, paradigm is there's a lot of, there are a lot of attributes, characteristics, traits that people would associate with special operators. And mostly because they've seen things in movies or read books yeah. and, and they're trying to extrapolate what a seal is, is all about from that, that don't convey because especially in leading uh, teams, businesses, groups, organizations in the commercial or the private sector environment for one major reason, you know, uncle Sam has paid $2 million a seal to provide you as a leader of seals with these elite, incredibly motivated people with high IQs, this intense focus on winning and, and, and uh, improving their skill set every day. And they're all dedicated to a higher cause. They're not there because they want to get a better paycheck. They're not looking for, the, for a title. They're not looking for a better parking spot or a better office you know, position in the office space. It is 100% the mission all day, all the time. Yeah. And, and that level of commitment, you don't even have to think about it, talk about it. You don't, you don't have to try to train to it necessarily. It's just part of their DNA. When you get out, and there there are there are challenges in leading groups like that. I, I told somebody one time, it, you know, it's like you walk into a room to start doing mission planning, whatever, and you got sixteen Napoleons staring back at you with yeah. their hands in their shirt. You know, they're all they all think they're smarter or smarter than you in everything, and they're ready to challenge you on every step. Right. So you become more of a facilitator during the planning process than a dictator for sure. But in the commercial markets. You can't that that kind of easy leading because everybody's willing to do whatever has, has to be done. 
that's not there. So you have to take a step back and you have to really think long-term planning, long-term development, long-term investment in people. You have to think about the kinds of leaders you want to hire or the kind of people you want to elevate to leadership. And you have to kind of think and envision of what kind of culture do I want? And maybe I can get close to that kind of culture of dedication and all that. But I don't think everybody in the 7-Eleven working there is going to suddenly be called the brotherhood because you got a great training plan. It's You're just never going to get that same level of, of intense commitment. So what can you get? Well, you figure that out. And so doing, you know, do, doing the job of leading businesses and growing businesses and evaluating leaders and hiring leaders and firing leaders and all that mm-hmm. stuff for the last decade plus, what I figured out was if you make the hiring process, if part of it is in the profile is picking certain attributes that are malleable, like you're trainable, you're open-minded, you have a sense of curiosity, you are happy to be creative. It's not an irritant to be creative. You can work in project teams or you can work as a solo act. You are good at following, but you don't have a problem with being put in charge of something, Mm -hmm. even temporarily. These are all things that I, in all my organizations, have always tried to educate the HR people about first, because they're the first gatekeepers. Don't hire somebody because their resume matches up. Yeah. Hire somebody because the person matches up. Are you are you encouraging them and recommending them in almost all of their screenings and processes to do, you know, personality traits, having them assess those individuals? Hey, take this 20-minute survey, right? Where it asks you basically the same questions, but in a bunch of different ways to figure out who you are and the way you, the I, way you work. I actually encourage them, especially in key hires and leadership hires, to to not go to a um kind of a standard uh, psychiatric survey study exam yeah. process. Yeah, interesting. Because, and you know, it depends on how good you are at reading people, right? But if you're sitting across the table from somebody and you ask some questions, like whenever I get in, it's a real high level higher, I'll, I'll sit in there and I wait until it's my turn. And then finally, whoever's running the process will say, you know, Marty, do you have any questions? And it's always the same question. They all, my guys all know it's all the same question. I say, so describe for me, you know, just in a minute or two, what your worst day is like at work. Mm. And, and then I sit back and I listen. And it's funny that because people don't perceive what I'm going for here, they tell me what their worst day at, at work looks like. And if it has to do with, being disrupted by other people's needs, if it has to do with being derailed from their to-do list, if it has to do, and, and a lot of frustration starts coming out, you start to see it, right? You hear it, mm-hmm. the body language. And and because uh, if you said, are you willing to work with project teams? Are you willing to go, sure, sure, sure. They'll, they'll, they'll say whatever you want when you do it that way. But when you ask them to kind of give that, give you a scenario, the feelings start to come out. And, and so you either get, most of the time you either get a very frustrated person that's resentful, resentful that they are being derailed from their to-do list and achieving what they want to achieve based on their, their um, single-minded focus tunnel vision on what they think their job is, which tells you they don't have a commitment to the greater good. Mm. It's all about, you know, I don't want to look bad job, yeah. job security, whatever. And once in a while you get somebody that answers it and says, well, I'm frustrated because I don't get a chance to get involved in, in some of the other things going on in the company. I'd like to know more about what the company's doing. I'd like to have a voice and maybe I have some ideas and, uh, and then I'll do a follow-up with those kinds of people. Then I'll yeah. say, well, what if you had, you know, deadlines to meet 
let's say I'm your boss and, and I come in and, and you have deadlines, you have a stack of stuff on your desk. And I ask you if you can take, you know, this weekend to come into the office and work with four other people that are working on a special project that's critical to the company. I mean, would you be okay with that? Oh, that'd be great. You know, if you hear that, you get, that's, that's what I'm trying to elicit from those questions. And that's, and I do it enough in front of my HR people that they can emulate that with lower level hires, but it's hard with some, with some professionals like accountants, uh, engineers, yeah. you know, people that are attracted to those professions because they're very set piece math. Math has only got one answer, right? Yeah. 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 Super analytical. And it's look, by the way, we need those people. Cause I don't operate like that in any capacity. Like it's not the way I'm, I'm wired. You, you've sat across the table from enough people. You can tell when somebody's bullshitting in an interview, like you just got, I, as far as I've I got tell, about like, a just 90, be honest, you might not get the job and maybe that's just the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. I've got about a 90% success rate. Mm-hmm. And you know, the older you are and the longer you've been doing this, the more you, you, you know, your, your mistakes make you smarter. Right? You, you, you rethink the scenario of that bad hire. And I've only had one or two really, really terrible hires. And unfortunately they were, you know, very senior people. Mm. So when you have a bad hire at that level, the ramifications and consequences and collateral damage is much worse. And so you like, you have to own it. Your fingerprints are all over the, yeah. you know, the selection, the process and the hiring. But yeah, most of the time I think, and you know, this isn't, this isn't going to be a perfect thing. And if they come in and they don't work out, they don't work out. But the other part is you have to, you have to create an environment and a culture that that kind of personality is going to feel comfortable in and excited to be in. Sure. You know, pulling everybody together to do collateral training so we can create cross, cross strengths and, and bench strength that to them, a lot of times, these kinds of people is exciting. You know, it's different and they get to see, you know, an accountant is suddenly doing pricing and they're doing logistics, you know, they're doing all these other things that aren't just the same old, you know, accounts payable tasks that they have every day. So yeah, yeah I, you have to have both. You have to have a process of measuring two or three times before you, you, you make the cut coming in the door. And then you have to have an environment they're coming into that's, that's nurturing those same kind of cultural behavioral expectations. And then you got to really watch your leaders. So they keep maintaining that they don't revert back to some more draconian siloed approach to getting things done. Cause that happens too. Sometimes doesn't matter if the guy on top has a philosophy, the people in the middle have more daily control over culture. That's a, it's a great point. You know, you can cast vision from above, but you do have to remember that the implementers right, are the ones that are going to have to carry that out every single day. That also means the boss man's got to have a level of connectivity, I believe. And every size and scope of business can be different, right? In the way that works. All right. So how does the creative Navy SEAL mindset win on the battlefield and in business? And that's the title of Marty's book, Be Nimble, How the Creative Navy SEAL Mindset Wins on the Battlefield and in Business. So how does that work? So I basically put a lot of my thoughts, a lot of my experiences, coaching, mentoring my own leaders, but also other leaders, business owners, CEOs over the last couple of years into a kind of a structured discussion as if I'm giving a mentoring session to either an existing leader or an aspiring leader. And that's the tone of the book. The book is conversational. The book is uh, designed to walk you through and build you up in, in knowledge and tips and tricks and methods and approaches to the things that leaders are going to run into. 
some of the things we've already talked about, creating a culture, creating, designing the organizational structure, designing jobs, redesigning jobs when things start to fall apart because you're getting, you're getting successful. You know, when, what happens when the wheels start wobbling because business is booming mm-hmm. and you forget that 10 people's jobs descriptions got blown apart because they've got five collateral duties each because you didn't think about this in advance and you have been hiring or redesigning the structure of the company. So you've got, you know, all these single points of failure there that are overwhelmed. So I talk about all that. I, I talk about uh, doing your own self-inventory of you as a leader. I, I study, read, listen to podcasts, webinars. Uh, this week, I had three different meetings where I talked to people that are in other professions, but are leaders and businessmen that I know. And <clears throat> I listen to their issues, their, their challenges, and I also pick their brains on things I'm thinking about. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and that keeps me open-minded and that keeps me, I guess that curiosity helps me be much, much more creative. And I learned that a lot of that from that session I described earlier, where you walk in the room and all the Napoleons are there. How do you take 16 smart people and take all their fire hose of ideas and uh, recommendations, call through all of that, structure it into a series, you know, a, a phase diagram, process diagram just like a program management execution diagram with times and resources assigned, et cetera, all the way through. And then say at some point pencils down, this is the plan. And, and then they all are professional enough to say, you know, Roger that boss. And then you go out and you, you either execute it the way you planned it, or you, you, you make it all up on the fly when you get there, depending on consequences. But that was, that was a very creative brainstorming oriented you know, kind of maelstrom of ideas, inputs, emotions, high energy, et cetera. And so I talk about that a lot in the book, but I use examples in, in business as much as I use examples from the SEAL team. So that way you kind of see that these are things that, that convey, these are things that are teachable. These are things that you don't have to go through, you know, a, a selection process and a special operations team to do. I make that point early in the book. So nobody feels like you have to be a, a seal to, to achieve some of these things. And I think, you know, I lead, lead the reader through a, to a point where they have a tool chest of, of ideas and a broader idea of what they should be aiming for to be an effective leader. And the focus in the background is these are dynamic organizations or businesses, usually scaling mergers, acquisitions, something that's challenging the status quo where that kind of leadership is needed as opposed to, you know, steady as she goes maintenance kind of scenario. What are your keys nowadays specifically I'm thinking about over the last two years in guiding leaders that are now void of the proximity that they used to have, right? We're losing some proximity, right? In this growing digital space, in this growing work from wherever you're at kind of world, What's that proximity? I mean, I, that's one thing. I mean, I, I need the proximity, right? Like I'm a proximity guy. Like I need to be around other people. I got to be out there. I got to be getting my hands dirty. Like how, how much of a challenge is that are you seeing in this space where proximity is now kind of fading a little bit? It's, it's tough. It's tough in a lot of different ways, but I had, and anybody who's been in the military that's moved up in the ranks and out of the operational, you know, pointing into the spear units you end up being a remote leader mm. right you're you're leading through radios and you're leading through you know satellite or predator 
overflight, you know, visual of what the team's doing. You have to trust the team, the team leaders, all the supporting teams, everybody. You have to trust everybody to do their job and execute. Where you started, where you cut your teeth, is being that person on the ground with a rifle in your hand, and it's visceral, you know, and and leadership is personal and intimate. But then as you go up and keep getting higher and higher in the ranks, you suddenly are detached from that. So I had gone through some of that already at the end of my career. I'm much better tactile, walking mm -hmm. around, looking at people, seeing how they're looking at their body language. I mentioned earlier wheels wobble. I, I can tell when somebody's kind of looks like they're a little shaky for some reason. It might be personal or it might be something to do with the job. I usually would go and tell their direct superior you know, hey, Susie or, or Bobby, whatever, look a little bit stressed or whatever, how are they doing? And then I either find out there's a personal issue. If I got a blank stare, then I'd feel pretty, you know, I'd be, I'd feel compelled to tell them, look, you need to know the state of mind of your, of your, mm -hmm. of your people here. So spend a little personal time with them, ask them how they're doing, take them to lunch or whatever. Um, so that was the way I managed and led right up into the pandemic. But even, even with the pandemic, the two companies that I oversee, one's a government contracting company focused on training, the other one's a healthcare company. The government contracting company's got about 400 to 500 uh, of our employees scattered in 21 states. They're not in my office. And, and the healthcare company has 178 employees, the majority of which are doctors and nurses scattered in seven states. So even before the pandemic hit, I only had about 40 or 50 people in the management group of those two companies sitting around me. I didn't have the majority of the almost 1,000 employees. When the pandemic hit, and I've actually decided to spend, um, to take this as a, an opportunity to evolve in the way we do our work. Mm -hmm. So I've shrunk from 21,000 square feet of office space in two locations down to 6,800 square feet in the last two years or so. Most of our people are knowledge workers, or they're these remote employees that I told you working at different sites and locations. My management team is, is um, I did this because it was January 21. I took a survey and everybody, you know, basically if COVID went away, would you still want to work from home? And they're like, yep. Like 90% of them said yes. So uh, three of them moved to South Carolina from where we lived here in Virginia Beach because I always wanted to live in South Carolina, but they couldn't because the job was here. And so the connectivity is the way we're doing it right now. It's, it's, it's um, visual teleconferencing, but we have all these, these cloud-based platforms now. So, you know, Salesforce, we've got all kinds of accounting platforms. We've got, you know, medical claims platforms. We can actually take our finger and stick it into one of these data flows and, and measure all these different points. That really didn't exist for the most part, say two years before um, COVID hit. Mm -hmm. It was just starting to really come to fruition and, and being affordable for midsize and smaller companies right about the time COVID hit. So, you know, it's kind of like capability met opportunity when it came to those kinds of technology, um, technology, I guess, improvements. So that's how we operate everything. And, and I know what my strong suit is, and it's not to look at somebody one dimensionally like this. Yeah. And, and what do people do on, you know, Zoom calls and other kinds of calls? They just sit here and they stare at you and they know they're on. So they're not going to give you that insight that they're tired or stressed or happy or anything. You're pretty much looking at a, a mannequin. So you've lost that piece yeah. of it for sure. I'm a little tired. 
I'm a little stressed. <laughs> so I'll just be totally honest with you, right? Like <laughs> here are things that are bothering me. I want this podcast to keep growing. I'm working my tail off. We're finding ways to make it happen. Like that stresses me out. I'm a little tired from that. So, but you don't look like that to me right now. See, I know. Well, you, I just you got your game face on because that's what I mean. If everybody yeah. has their game face on, it's hard yeah. to see be beyond that and see how they're doing. Keep your game face on when you're on Zoom, and friendly reminder: keep your game pants on, people. Okay, yes. when you're yes. on that Zoom call, the proven point. If you've learned anything over the last two years, at least it's that. You might be at home, you might be in soft pants, but come on, get it together. Uh, where can folks find you, Marty? Where Where are you putting stuff out at? Let them know where you're at. Uh, yeah. Let them know when they get the book, all that good stuff. You just go to martystrongbenimble.com. And uh, my second book, Be Visionary, is coming out in awesome. uh, on January 1st of 23. Yeah. That's available for pre-sale now on Amazon. So, and I also, I also written nine novels. So if you go to martystrongbenimble.com, you'll have access to the novels. Cool. And all the proceeds of my uh, my novels go to the Seal Veterans Foundation, and uh, awesome, and have man. since the beginning. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome, guys. Go check it out uh, when you're up uh, and you're ringing the new year. You just head right to Amazon and pick up his new book. Like, yeah, right as it's available. That's great, man. I've had a blast. It's been great getting to know you. I really appreciate the history, right? History of the SEAL teams. I think it was cool for our listeners. We haven't done that deep of a dive here. We've done a lot more individual. Like, tell me your story about all these things. It was cool to get that perspective. Yeah. So thanks well, for doing that. Glad to do it. Absolutely, man. Best of luck to you in the future. Uh, fan for life. And you let us know if you ever need anything in the, uh, as you go forward. Will do. Thanks, Brian. You got it. He's Marty Strong. I'm Brian Jodas. That's been this episode of Pickup Six Podcast.